Welcome to the VBAC Link Podcast. We are a team of expert doulas trained in supporting VBAC, have had VBACs of our own, and work extensively with VBAC women and their providers. We are here to provide detailed VBAC and cesarean prevention stories and facts in a simple, consolidated format. When we were moms preparing to VBAC, it was stories and information like we will be sharing in this podcast that helped fine-tune our intuition and build confidence in our birth preparations. We hope this does the same for you. To hear more about us and to hear our individual VBAC stories, be sure to check out episodes 1, 2, and 3. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Hello, hello. Good morning, everybody. We are on episode 28 today, and we have our friend Nicole. She messaged us on Instagram asking to share her story, and we just cannot wait to hear it. Kind of some fun things about her uh, birth is that her two little boys are actually two years apart exactly to the date, two years apart. And I know that lots of people out there ask about that, you know, when can I, when can I have um, a VBAC after my cesarean? And so we will talk a little bit more about that in the end. But right now we would like to open it up to Nicole. So Nicole, we would love for you to share everything you'd like to about your VBAC journey. Thanks so much. Thanks for uh, taking the time to hear my story. Mm-hmm. Um, so my husband and I found out we were pregnant in October of 2015. We were surprised it happened quicker than we thought. I had an OB that I was familiar with and comfortable with, so we went to our early appointments, and everything seemed like it was going well. The dating was, you know, confirmed by the early ultrasounds. And then we were presented with the option of doing some extra screening, like a 12-week ultrasound, just to make sure that there weren't any any issues. The baby was developing um, well. And um, so we went in and had that done. And it just made me nervous doing it. But it was something we both decided on together, uh, my husband and I, that we should just go ahead and do it. They did some early screening and found the nuchal translucency, the the pocket or the fluid behind the baby's head was measuring on the higher end. Um, I think like the highest within normal is like a 3.0 millimeters and he was like 2.9. So we were advised to have further testing. Um, We could either do blood work sent out to a lab in California or we could have had uh, another test just to make sure that there wasn't uh, any trisomy um, issues. So we were nervous. I spent a lot of time just worrying and just I think the way that the office presented the information just made it seem like we were kind of determined to have an issue. They, the nurse called and told me that we had like a 1 in 10 chance of having a baby with an extra chromosome, so trisomy 21. It was just a lot to process for a first pregnancy and I'm like a worrier by nature. So we went ahead and um, went with the blood work, and we were thankful that everything was fine. We found out, I think, a couple weeks after they had taken taken the blood sample. So that was a relief. 
But after that, my doctor still had me going in for extra ultrasounds. So I was going every month till the end of my pregnancy. And I started to just kind of question like, okay, well, we had the blood work back and the baby's fine. So I'd rather just not keep having these ultrasounds. And then, you know, the explanations were we're worried about a small baby. And then when I hit 20 weeks, it kind of flipped and they said we're worried about a big baby. So that's when kind of the stereotypical, like you're going to have a big baby and, you know, like kind of the foreshadowing of a possible C-section started. So that just kind of worried me. From the beginning of my pregnancy, I really just did not want a C-section for various reasons, just the recovery and major surgery and just all of those things were, you know, incentive enough not to want that for my first birth. So like a lot of people are like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I kept questioning the the, um, ultrasounds, but my OB kept requesting that I order them. So I had once every month that I go to maternal fetal medicine and I would just always be concerned that something else was going to pop up. But towards the end of pregnancy, I think at my 36-week appointment, my blood pressure was a little elevated. And I think my OB, after the ultrasound, she saw me for my appointment and kind of was like, maybe you're just worried because she had kind of said that a C-section might be a possibility for me. And she had me come back, I think, the next day to just check my blood pressure and make sure everything was fine and it was normal. So everything kind of played out fine. She just let me know that they wouldn't let me go past 41 weeks just because they thought my baby was going to be 10 pounds which wasn't really even close, but that was just kind of always like the focus of my appointments, which I didn't really like towards the end. But I went into labor on my own around 39, I think, and two was when it started. I went to, we had a doula, so that was like one thing that I didn't mention early on, but we had a doula that we had met with once, and she made us feel pretty comfortable. It was just good support for my husband and I. We just both like to have all the information and options available and it was support for him as much as it was for me. So when I went into early labor, um, I think she came over and she gave me a, like a labor encouragement massage and she didn't think just because of how I was acting that it was active labor. It was just early labor. So she went home, I think probably around nine o'clock and in the evening and we tried to sleep and probably around like midnight, 1am I, kind of got into our tub and was just kind of uncomfortable enough not to be able to sleep. We called her, I think, at 3 a.m., and she's like, if you can maybe just find a comfortable position, I'll I'll come over and meet you guys and see where you're at. So she came over, I think, probably at like 5 in the morning or so, and we had decided on, I think it was the 13th, that we should head to triage. So when we got there, I was only at a 3, and uh, I'd had like Braxton Hicks and just the prodromal labor that made it seem like for like a first time mom that I might be further along than that. Now that I've had two pregnancies, I know that it was not probably intense enough to be active labor. So we went back home, tried to tried to rest and, and sleep and the contractions picked up again and we left the next day in the morning on the 14th of July and we were admitted that time. I was like maybe a four or five and I just had a lot of pain and and pressure. I just remember when I was admitted, I was trying to use the peanut ball and and I was lucky enough to get a room with a tub. 
tried to like use that for relaxing and one of the stranger things that happened was I lost my ability to urinate so I was just feeling like the pressure to, to go to the bathroom and I just couldn't go and I asked my nurse when she came in I was like I just feel like there's something going on and she's like your, your bladder is just like very it's bulging and they had to do a catheter so from that point on I just you know had a catheter every time they needed to drain it and that just kind of was difficult at that point I'd had no like intervention I didn't have a epidural or any pitocin so I was just trying to labor on my own and I really hadn't progressed much I think later in that evening my my OB was on rounds and I'd only dilated to a six and I was admitted 12 hours prior at a four or five so they suggested an epidural just to kind of relax and sleep and hopefully further um, progress. I fell asleep, I think, by around dinner time. And then I think they checked me again at 11, and I wasn't any further. So they had suggested breaking my waters, and they found meconium. So at that point, they were kind of saying, well, we'll give you a little more time, but since we've broken your water and we found meconium, things need to progress. I think they said within like 12 or so hours. So at that point, I was getting a little worried and tired and in a lot of pain. So I had agreed to to have an epidural. I'm sorry, I had, I had just relaxed from the epidural. Um, and then my OB came in and she was checking my blood pressure and it was elevated. So they checked my um, urine for protein and they had found that I had preeclampsia, which was a surprise to our doula and my OB. They started a magnesium drip and they backed down the Pitocin because that can kind of, I think, have, have adverse effects. So at that point, I tried to sleep. It was, I think, 9.30 a.m. on the 15th of July. I was just really out of it. I know that I had like a bolus that I thought that I could give myself extra, you know, pain meds and my husband and our doula just told me that I just kept hitting it all the time and it was just, I, it's hard to just kind of compartmentalize everything that was going on just within that time frame. So around 12 p.m. I think I was kind of in and out of napping and the OB that was um, making rounds kind of came in and started like the first discussion for the C-section. I think the last time that they had checked for dilation, I was like an eight. The other kind of issue was I had like all these different nurses and OBs that were kind of coming in and, and checking and everyone has like a different, you know, number that they would give me. So it was everything from like a seven to a nine. So that was kind of frustrating. But my husband and I, we talked to our doula and we all kind of felt like at this point with the preeclampsia and just the meconium and the waters being broken and just like my general state was, you know, I should definitely consider it. And I was worried that if I did have, if I did dilate enough, that I wouldn't really have enough energy to push. And I just didn't feel like myself. So I think around three, we made the decision and my son was born at like 328. So he was born quickly. And I just remember like when they handed him to me, I just really couldn't, like I could hold him, but I just really wasn't like firmly there to grab him it was just such a strange feeling but I was awake enough to like see him and hold him with some help and 
they tried to do all the, you know, soft, the gentle C-section things. They gave him right to me and he'd never left the room. We kind of all stayed together. Um, they had, you know, pediatricians there to check on him just because of the meconium when he was first born and everything was okay. So we all went to recovery together and we all were, I think a couple hours or so later, we went to the mother baby unit. So it wasn't like as, you know, difficult as if the baby couldn't be with us, but it was definitely just a lot to take in and process while just being not really aware of everything that had happened and like the timeline. But one like really funny thing was when my, my son was being born, we didn't know the gender and I wanted my husband, if, if I could have had the baby naturally, I wanted him to, to name the gender. And I just remember the first thing he said when he was born was he has cute ears and it was just a special memory just Aww. with everything that happened that I didn't want to happen. That's just like the one thing that always makes me smile. We had like great, great staff, great nurses. And I feel like just considering everything that happened, it went as well as it could have. Um, I think it just was like kind of a, a compacted effect of a long labor and the meconium and then the, um, the preeclampsia was definitely just a lot in one birth experience now that I've had a second to kind of I think I did the best thing that I could have but it was still like definitely a disappointment I think it took a while after to just process it and just be okay with it Um, it's understandable you had a lot going on yeah definitely and nothing that I was prepared for so that's always what people say is yeah but I knew like after we had my son that if we had another child that I would really try to have a vaginal birth just because the c-section was just difficult to recover from just to have help and not driving and I just really didn't like the idea of having surgery again so we thought we'd try you know for a two-year window and found out that we were pregnant in uh fall of, of 2017 and uh we had moved um, a couple months before my first son was born, so I had a different provider, and it was a different hospital system, and everything was, was pretty seamless. I, I saw a midwife this time around instead of an OB. I, I felt like maybe my son couldn't be born naturally just because of a positional issue. Everyone said he was he was big. Um, he was only 8 pounds, 6 ounces. I am like a smaller person, but I had a son that was similar size and had no problems. Yeah, so I had a great midwife and it was very minimal intervention. I We did like a one twenty week ultrasound and everything was fine and it was just office visits. It just felt like a, a completely different experience. The only time that I started getting kind of nervous or thinking like I was headed down the same like kind of course again was around like 39 weeks. They they had me schedule um, a C-section for 41 weeks in case I didn't go into labor. They weren't going to induce me and if we didn't go into labor on my own. So that kind of started making me a little nervous. I'd hoped that I would, you know, go into labor on my own since I did with my, with my first son, but um, you never know. So I kind of had... Braxton Hicks around 34 weeks with my second pregnancy. They all kind of seemed to be patterned around too much activity or not enough hydration. So I tried to take it easy um, as much as I could with the 
with an almost two-year-old. And uh, my doctor's office, they were just really nice about, you know, scheduling the, the C-section. They just said, hopefully you don't need it. It's just to have you covered if, if we have to have, you know, it performed. But I ended up going into labor after probably like five weeks of just a lot of Braxton Hicks that lasted a long time. I like questioned at 38 weeks if I was going into labor and then it stopped all of a sudden more than just, you know, discomfort or like laying down on your side or drinking water that kind of relieved that it was kind of seemed like it could have been early to like lead into active labor. So around, I think 30, 39 and, and three, probably four, actually, I started having pretty good contractions. I kind of tried to labor at home as long as I could because I thought, you know, I, I didn't progress as fast the first time and maybe it's it's kind of similar this time. But I was at home. It was kind of like following the same exact time frame as, as my other son. It was like trying to go to bed at night and being awake and, you know, taking baths and trying to just calm my muscles. And that, that helped. But as soon as I tried to lay down or rest, it just, it was kind of persistent pain. And so my husband and I went to triage, I think, on on the 13th. Um, I tried to wait as long as I could. And I was pretty sure that I might have been further along this time because it was my second pregnancy. So we went. They checked me. I was at a three. And I was just, like, feeling like I was reliving my first experience, like going in at a three. They kept us just because they didn't see a lot of activity, um, fetal activity. Um, I think the monitors kept shifting and it was just kind of that's all it was but they had to just check because I was there and so far along but they ended up just saying you know we can give you something to help you rest and send you home but you know we can't admit you and it was just disappointing I just like think my husband and I were walking to the car and I just like got super upset I just felt like what am I doing to myself just because all through the pregnancy like a lot of people were just like don't you just want to make you know, make it easier and schedule a C-section and I was just like, not at all. And, and, you know, it just, it started to just make me wonder if, if I had made the wrong decision, but my husband's like, just, you know, we'll figure it out. And, you know, you've gone this far and we we'll just go home and rest and see how everything progresses. And, and that was good advice. And that's usually, he has good advice in times when I'm questioning things. So that helps, but we came home I think we got home at probably like 1 a.m. My mom was here staying with our our older son, and she was trying to just, you know, help me as much as she could, and I just said rest because our son, you know, will get up at 6 a.m. and keep you moving until 6 p.m., so I just wanted her to rest as much as she could because she'd be with him without us. And I kind of slept as much as I could, did some bath time and shower. The hot water just really helped, and around 7 a.m. on the 15th, I, I just had difficulty talking and just, like, I was kind of doing, like, cat-cow positions and, like, laying on my side on the floor. It was just felt like more of active labor. I think the first pregnancy, it was just hard for me to decipher, but I definitely knew when I was in active labor. So we went back to the to triage, and they admitted us right away. They could, they could kind of tell, and the nurse the night before, had said, you know, we'll kind of know and in your voice and how you act if you're in active labor, and that was true. So they admitted <laughs> so me, true. and uh, yeah, yeah. So 
we went, it was felt like so easy. They just admitted us and um, took us to a room and we had a really like nice and just calm RN and we kind of just discussed options. I'd, I'd hoped to have, you know, no intervention and no epidural because I thought if I can move around and my midwife can help with like positional changes, I thought that would just be optimal. But I had been in labor for so long and, and I only had a five and, and a decent amount of pain. She had just said it's, it can help people if, if you try to relax and, you know, it's not always the case that it slows labor or you'll get stuck if you have an epidural. So at that point, I just wanted to, to give myself the best chance, like stamina-wise. So we, we went ahead and had the epidural and I rested probably from like nine to maybe three. They came in and I had a peanut ball and I was just progressing like slowly but surely. Like it was, you know, a couple, uh, I think it went from five when I was admitted to like maybe a seven and then from probably, I think, 4 p.m. on, I really progressed, like, quickly. Um, I think the peanut ball was did the trick for me. But uh, I, at one point when I was wanting to just turn, they would turn me every 30 minutes from one side to the other just to kind of give my, my chances of, of dilation um, just better balance, I think. And I just asked if I could maybe just sit up a little bit more um, instead of being on my side. And I think the baby's heart rate dropped quickly. They came in. They had an anesthesiologist. Um, they were backing down my epidural um, because I was close to pushing, and they thought I need to have some sensation to, to feel pushing. Um, Good for them. Like, not a lot yeah. of patients do that. <laughs> it, it was kind of funny because a lot of – there just seemed to be a disconnect between the RN and the anesthesiologist. And, you know, I didn't have this with my first experience, but the anesthesiologist would come in just as much as the RN and just be like, what's your pain like? And, you know, how, how, how is, like, the feeling? Because I still felt contractions. Like, they're like, you, you're not yeah. going to have, like, 100%, like, pain-free, but are they manageable? And I'm like, yeah. Like, I still had to breathe through some of them, but it was far better than, you know, what it would have been without it. So they kept coming in and it seemed like my husband had mentioned they just don't seem like they're on the same page. And then when I moved positions and the baby's heart dropped, there was, I think, six people in the room, like, within a second. And uh, they were trying to flip me and they put, you know, air, um, a mask on, um, oxygen to help the baby. And I was like, I feel so nauseous. I was just like, can I take this off? And the RN was just like, very calmly, like, you know, it's going to help your baby. Can you just try to, like, keep it on as much, you know, try as much as you can to keep it on? And so I was kind of, like, punched over a ball, like, leaning forward, facing, like, the back of the bed, and everyone was just trying to, like, get me in a good position. And, and thankfully, the baby responded well, and it was fine. It felt like right after that happened, they checked me, and I was on my back, and I think I was on my side, actually, and, and the midwife came in, and she's like, you know, I, if you want to start pushing, I think you're ready, and I pushed on my side for probably, like, an hour, and it just didn't feel right, and I really never had planned to, like, be on my back, like, in a hospital bed pushing. That really wasn't what I thought would work for me, and, and it really did. I think, like, 10, 15 minutes later, he was born, and it just kind of wow. shocked me. It's just, like... 
how I thought as soon as like his heart rate dropped, I thought, well, here's like, you know, my C-section, my second C-section. And I don't know, I don't like to jump to negativity, but I was just like thinking there has to be something just, I felt like my first pregnancy had so many like, like kind of stops where I would worry that something was going to happen. And this time it just seemed like it was, you know, slower, but it was simpler for sure. Um, so I was just, thankful for anesthesiology to like just like you said that I they thought thought enough to to back down the meds and we're you know working with with the RNs it just seemed like wasn't what I expected and I wouldn't really intervene because I I didn't know really what was typical I didn't have that experience before but we had like a a great experience and it was we didn't know the gender with either of our sons, but this time um we were so shocked that it was like a natural like a vaginal birth that we no one announced the gender. My midwife was like, Did you want your husband to to tell you what what ba- what the baby is? And I was like, Yeah and you know <laughs> he talked and it was another little boy and he looked just like our first son, which was really kinda crazy. It like felt like we went back in time two years ago. But it was a great experience. I was like very happy that I went went with my gut and tried for a vaginal birth and I felt like I don't think this is like true of everyone but I felt like a midwife just really tried to like work with me on positioning and you know she'd come in and do like side lying like leg leg stretches and I had the peanut ball and I mean I don't think she did you know a ton of outside the norm um, things on me but it it definitely made me feel better that I was trying everything to to have the baby in the right position. I don't think that he was um, posterior for a while, and I think that's why I was kind of stalled for as long as I was. But he eventually turned and went quickly in the end, so it was a really good experience. He was born, I think, just 11 hours after we had been checked into triage, so much quicker than, than my first. But, yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, I know. That is so cool. I like listening to your story and in my mind I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna talk about that after she's done oh no wait, I'm gonna talk about that after she's done like I wanna talk about everything, but I won't for the sake of time. (laughs) But um I just wanna touch on a couple things. Guys, a lot of times, like looking back as I'm listening to this story, um, we a lot of our stories have unmedicated VBACs. That's just, you know, the specific route that they've chosen. And I don't want anyone to think that you cannot have a VBAC with an epidural because it happens. It does mm-hmm. happen. And yeah. everyone, if you, if you don't, if you didn't quite pick up on the things that, that this birth team did to assist the mom while she was having an epidural to ensure that the baby was in a great position and, and really help her have a vaginal birth, go back and listen again. But actually, just kidding. You know me. I'm going to talk about him right now. Okay, so first of all, <laughs> first of all, let's see, where was I? Oh, yeah, so the, the, the anesthesiologist turned the epidural down while she was pushing so she could feel her contractions in Actually, if you listen, he didn't have it up so high either. Epidurals can be like, like 
so high to the point you can't feel anything, and they can be high enough to where it relieves your pain, but you can still know what your body's still doing. Move and, and feel. Yes. Yeah. And then the midwife helped her switch sides. Megan and I, we love the peanut ball. We actually... I wish I was, I was the a creator is what I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Megan and I had a... Um, I was a backup for Megan at a birth, and there was a client who, um, it was not a VBAC mom, but first-time mom who had labored so long and so hard and chose the epidural, and, you know, uh, we were turning her back and forth on the peanut ball, and, I mean, I even have had her, like, sitting up with her legs kind of, like, crisscrossed, but, like, a diamond shape, like, the a birth ball there, and she's hunched over, like, spelling out the alphabet with her hips to help get the baby in a better position, and there are a lot of things you can do when you have an epidural besides lay yep. on your back and wait for a baby, and yep. I am just so excited to hear that Nicole's birth team did that for her, the anesthesiologist was there, the midwife was there, everybody was there helping her achieve that vaginal birth, and I think that that is just incredible. This other thing I wanted to talk about was overcoming, like, your, your fears as you prepare for your VBAC because um, Nicole mentioned that when she got to the hospital for her VBAC, she was dilated to exactly the same as she was for her C-section, and she felt defeated. You guys, a lot of people, that happens to a lot of people, and a lot of times you won't really believe that your VBAC is going to happen until you, like, get past the point in your labor that you hit when you had your C-section. And so if you need help processing that, find a doula, talk to a friend, work through it, because it can seriously hang you up. But anyways, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step down off my little soapbox and rave about the incredible birth team that Nicole had, and Megan is going to share some facts about length of time between C-section and your next conception or pregnancy. Yes, I think this, you know, and actually today on our Instagram, specifically, we have been asked this question three times, um, yes. you know, of how far is it okay to space out my newborn baby after my cesarean, you know, or my, my next baby after my cesarean, and, you know, every, every provider is going to say different things, and there really are different sources out there that they're all over the place. Some of them are 18 months, some of them are 12, some of them are 6, you know, some of them are 2 years. So um, there will be a blog today, so make sure to buzz over because I'm not going to go over the whole thing. But um, I just kind of wanted to touch on that. Um, so the gap between your last pregnancy and your next baby is ultimately your decision. It's your choice. And researchers are showing that although there is evidence that the uterine scar does become thicker and stronger over time, that between pregnancies, those, those gaps, the, the risk is really, you know, within six months and two years. The, they did a study with six months and two years, and they did show that the, the risk of the uterine separation or uterine rupture or the separation of the scar was slightly higher uh, for pregnancies that were six months or less. However, um, the risks are pretty small, and again, it's it's ultimately your decision. So I think 
you know, go over and read our blog and, and ponder it and decide what is best for you and your family. And we just really hope you the best. And also, I feel like it's really important to discuss it with your your personal um, provider because everyone's cesarean scars are different. And, you know, different cesareans had maybe more traumatic or maybe it was more straightforward. So head over to our blog today and read more in depth about that study that I am talking about. Yeah, and I think it's so also important to note, Megan, that after like a gap between pregnancies of greater than six months did not show any, any increase of uterine uterine rupture risk. So six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, 10 months, 12 months, 15 months, two years, five years, 10 years between pregnancies, all the same level of risk of uterine rupture. As long as you're six months, that's what the study says, okay? Yeah, six months or more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, as long as you're six months or more based on this study, and like I said, or like Megan said, go to our blog. We'll have the full study right there for you to look at. Talk with your provider. Your specific scar type or other birthing circumstances might warrant a longer length between pregnancies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Nicole, we really appreciate you so much. I love your story. And I think it's so fun. Do you guys just have big birthday parties every year? (laughs) Seriously, the whole neighborhood would be coming to my house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was funny because our, our RN when my second son was born was like, so we'll see you July 15th, 2020. And I think that just like terrified my husband, but they just thought it was the funniest thing. Um, yeah. It's so fun. I mean, I'm a very big birthday girl. I mm-hmm. have loved birthdays since I was little. And my daughter's birthday is on the 4th and mine's on the 9th of November. And we do. We have a birthday week and I love it. So I Aww, bet you guys have, uh, have some fun yeah. time. Definitely. Well, thanks for listening and thanks for just providing the platform and resource for people that, you know, are considering a VBAC. It's definitely helped me and I appreciate it. Yes, thank thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Hey guys, did you know we have a new website? Well, we do. It is thevbacklink.com. We are always looking for new stories. To share your story and possibly be on our podcast, Post your story on social media and hashtag YWeVBack and tag us at the VBAC link. Or you can complete the new form on our brand new website at the VBACklink.com slash share. Don't forget about our online VBAC prep courses. To learn more, head over onto our website. Be sure to rate us and share and leave your reviews. We are excited to hear what you think. For families local to Utah, be sure to check out our website, utahvbacklink.com, for more information on our VBAC childbirth classes and doula services. Thank you so much for listening. We are excited for you to begin your journey with us.